Good morning. Our first case is McKnight et al. versus Wakefield Missionary Baptist Church, Inc. et al. We will hear from the appellant. Good morning, Justices. Uh, may it please the court, my name is Michael Jones. I represent the plaintiff appellants in this matter, being Charlotte McKnight and Audrey Foster in their official capacities as officers and trustees of Wakefield Missionary Baptist Church, an unincorporated association. Um, I would also like to reserve five minutes of rebuttal time. Uh, the issue, your, uh, your honors, that I submit to this court to decide today will be whether or not the North Carolina Business Court committed reversible error by imposing a permanent injunction against the plaintiff appellants as a religious organization, which prohibits them from using their trade name subsequent to a church split. I would ask this court to find in the affirmative to that that there was error by the business court. Um, to, to reach the issue here today, your honors, I would um, give, give a recitation of the facts in this case. Wakefield Missionary Baptist Church is a church that's located in Zebulon, North Carolina. They're a church that's about 150 to 155 years old. Um, at some point in time in 2019, there were various issues that arose within the church body. <coughs> um, these issues progressed to the point where uh, the plaintiff appellants and various other members of the church were locked out, physically locked out from the unincorporated association by other trustees uh, and officers. Um, the church, your honor, is governed. <clears throat> they do have a set of uh, bylaws and constitutions. The bylaws and the constitutions for uh, Wakefield Missionary Baptist Church, an unincorporated association at that time made the church membership the governing body. The um, governing body was not vested in any board or any group of individuals, but in the congregation, it was a congregational church. <clears throat> Once, Your Honor, the members were physically locked out, demand was made by an official, the senior pastor, uh, for those trustees who had locked the church doors to open them, which they did not do. The members who retained physical possession of the church, the faction that retained physical possession, they then incorporated uh, the unincorporated, they, they presumed to incorporate the entire um, association. Of course, uh, the appellants um, do not agree with that, and I'll get to that in a minute, but they incorporated it. Uh, the unincorporated association at the North Carolina Secretary of State's office. And then later, uh, they transferred the church's real property into Wakefield Missionary Baptist Church, Inc., I believe is what they became incorporated. And they then um, um, transferred the property. Well, litigation ensued, your honors. Um, case was filed. I think there was, well, first there was an interpreter action that was filed by the bank. Uh, this church body had about $250,000, $260,000 cash that's uh, in the Wake County um, 
being held by the Wake County Clerk's Office pending what this court decides uh, here today, possibly. Um, <clears throat> and so later, I think there was an amended complaint. Uh, the case went to the North Carolina Business Court on the basis of trade name, uh, trademark infringement. So that's how we got to the business court from the Wake County Superior Court. Um, what the court ultimately said, the business court, what we're here to address today, the um, trade name infringement or the injunction, uh, what the court found was that um, <clears throat> the parties who had been excluded, those are the plaintiff appellants. Uh, the, uh, they're the ones that were excluded from the church premises, uh, told not to come on, uh, come back. Um, the record does have, there's a letter in the record on appeal showing that, you know, there's, as it was authored, that if you come back on, there may be um, violence. Um, what the business court concluded was that, well, wait a minute, you know, because the faction didn't come back. The plaintiff appellants did not come back <clears throat> after the church had been incorporated, that they were the faction that left. And they concluded that. And what the business court ultimately rested its case on <clears throat> was the Purcell case. It's a, it's a Fourth Circuit case in South Carolina. And what that case had to do with was a Methodist uh, church organization <coughs> where uh, it was three different churches, uh, this huge conference, and they were going through some changes. And what ultimately happened was that a faction left that body and they used the same name, some like Southern, it was Methodist uh, Southern. Uh, and, and what the business court concluded, well, I'm going to look at this case, and there is an exception. <clears throat> and that exception is, you know, if you leave, then the parties that leave can't then use the same church name, can't use the same name. It caused confusion. And that was the Purcell case, which I would, it's Purcell v. Summers, Your Honors. That's 145 Federal Supplement 797. That's the 1944 case. I would contend here, Your Honor, that that case is distinguishable from what happened here in this case. Because in this case, Your Honor, you did not have members of this unincorporated association leave the association. They were excluded from it. These were the officers. In other words, Your Honors, um, you have this association. Certain members don't agree with it. The bylaws and the Constitution says, well, you know, you have to have a church vote because it's a congregational church and the bylaws again the bylaws put the vest the authority in the members not a board not any one trustee not any group of trustees because that's what happened in this case and that is why it is distinguishable first of all on one point is because one is um again the parties here, the plaintiff appellant, did not leave the church. They were forced to leave. Um, subsequent to that, what happened, Your Honors, is that uh, the members then met, the, the ones that stayed, the um, appellees. They stayed, got together. They had these votes 
on the names and whatnot. And these votes excluded the appellants. The appellants were never given notice. Uh, indeed, uh, the atmosphere was so contentious that it would not have been good for these two parties to have gotten together. And so the position of the appellants before this court is that all of the actions taken by the appellees were never authorized under the bylaws and constitutions. Now, the injunction is based also, your honors, on the fact that, well, there's going to be confusion. Well, what this court, your honors, held in Charcoal Steakhouse versus, Char uh, I'm sorry, Charcoal Steakhouse of Charlotte versus Staley, two-way radio service versus Inc. versus two-way radio of North Carolina. And then there's one out originally out of Durham, there's Blackwell v. Wright. Uh, there was the use of the name um, Durham Genuine Tobacco. And what this court has said, your honors, that you do not acquire a trade name or exclusive intellectual property right in a generally generic trade name, in a name or phrase, and in particular, if it is a name that is a geographic location. Now, in this case, your honors, um, the plaintiff appellant's name was Wakefield Missionary Baptist Church. And the name Wakefield, I don't think anyone would disagree, is sort of a geographic designation. Um, there are several um, um, subdivisions, I guess, in Wake County that use the name Wakefield uh, here in Zebulon. There's the Wakefield. And so the contention is, is that there was nothing uh, protectable as far as a, a trade name for the appellees. And therefore, we would, the appellants would contend that an injunction should not have been issued to prevent them from using that name. Council, am I correct in, in thinking that um, you didn't actually appeal from the summary judgment order? The summary judgment, that is correct. It was inadvertent. You are correct, Justice. It was inadvertently left out of the um, notice of appeal. Uh, it listed two of them, but um, again, so, I'm sorry. So since it was in the summary judgment order that the trial court um, resolved the um, claim or counterclaim for trade name infringement, um, is that issue in front of us on the merits? It is a very good question, Your Honor. It is not, again, as this court has ruled, is that, well, those issues dealing with the summary judgment um, are off the table. But when you look at the injunction and when you look at how the, um, and when you look at it's the June 6th order, I believe it was if I got the date right, of the business court where you have the permanent injunction, this court said, well, you can certainly address that issue. And in order to address that issue, Your Honor, we would, the appellants would contend that you have to look at the trade name issues because that is what the business court's order went into. It went into was there a likelihood of confusion um, uh, in this argument. So I think, Judge, you'd have to touch on the trade name issue. 
based on that way that the order was drafted. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, the injunction, because what it is, the injunction used again Purcell v. Summers, and that case dealt with, you know, confusion in the uh, 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 locality, uh, confusion in the uh, in the public, and so therefore you do have to touch on. It would be our contention. Uh, whether or not then there's a, a trade name interest in that name only. Uh, we would contend, the appellants would contend, the plaintiff appellants, your honors, that um, what the business court failed to do in this case also when issuing the permanent injunction that you cannot use this name to a faction that was excluded, you cannot use this name, I, I, an analysis your Honor, of, you know, when one, I guess, uh, a trade name vests, uh, a trade name interest vests in a particular party. And as an example, Your Honor, in the Perini versus Perini, it's a Fourth Circuit case that, uh, where one has to um, um, show that there has been a secondary meaning attached to that name, such that they have exclusive use and meaning that, you know, for example, when one says Nike or one says McDonald's, you, you're not going to get that mixed up. You know <clears throat> who McDonald's is, you know who Nike is, uh, you know, from small kids to adults. Uh, and in this case, there was no showing that there was a secondary meaning in this name by the appellees that, look, this name is, it is, 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 is so recognized it's so out there in the public that when you say Wakefield Missionary Baptist Church, that's us, that is ours. It belongs to us and no one else can use that. And we're contending with this permanent injunction that that's not the case. Um, there was no showing of, of likelihood of confusion. That's one of the elements you have to show that not only a secondary meaning, but that there is a likelihood of confusion. That was not present, um, Your Honor. It wasn't. It was talked about in the order, but there were no facts ever presented uh, at the trial by, by anyone. It was just sort of, when you read the business court's order, it's just, well, you know, we're going to go by Perini, and here's what, I'm sorry, we're going to go by Purcell versus Summers. The difference with the Purcell and Summers is you didn't have an individual church. In the Purcell and Summers case, which the business court relied on, you had actually an organization, it was the Methodist uh, organization. And you had thousands of members. The court goes into extensive detail that you had millions of dollars in property. Here we have a single church located in Wake County where there were the members um, argued. We would contend, the plaintiff appellants would contend that this court based on that would find that it's error in this case to then say to the faction that was excluded that you can no longer use this name. Again, it's not a situation where they, they left volunteers. So, and please correct me if I'm misinterpreting, but in, in the trial court's order, um, permanent injunction and, and final judgment order, um, there's a footnote that says that the injunction jointly proposed by the parties, essentially what it says is, was broader than what the court ended up with. Um, is that right? 
Uh, no, sir. Uh, um, because the parties, we never reached, uh, we never reached um, um, any agreement on the, um, on the name. I think what the court did tell us to do, which I did along with opposing counsel, we got together and we sort of drafted an order, I believe, for the court, uh, uh, is my recollection. And that was after, again, the, what the court said is, like, you all get together. I think, I, and if I'm, Mr. Kitchen can probably speak to it when he comes up. We were to get together, come up with a proposed draft, and then submit it. But we never agreed, because we even said, Your Honor, in, um, in what we submitted to the court, that it was noted expressly that, you know, the plaintiff appellants do not agree with the court's decision. However, we are following what the court told us to do. Um, having said that, Your Honor, I would uh, close by saying that um, we believe that this court should find that in this case a permanent injunction for the name should not uh, be imposed. I would respectfully ask this court to consider what the ramifications are, something like that. Uh, what this court would be doing is saying that for any unincorporated association or anybody that if you have members and you can get possession of the church and you can lock the other folks out and not let them in they are precluded from using the name now they may resort to the courts for relief but if they aren't uh, successful in their argument then you have to stop using the name I, I, think, Your Honor, that they have not, that the appellees in this case have not shown where there is a trade name uh, um, acquisition in the name Wakefield Missionary Baptist Church uh, wherein a, a permanent injunction should be imposed against the appellants. So, so sorry, yes, sir. but uh, again, the, the summary judgment order in which the trial court ruled for the defendant on the trade name infringement was not appealed. Um, so what, if you disagree with the um, injunction, injunctive relief, what, in your view, kind of, what relief is available given that they've prevailed on that claim? Well, that's a good question, Your, your Honor. Um, the relief that we are contending here today, I contend, is that they be permitted, again, the injunction, when it was uh, issued, keep in mind, and, and it, it's sort of a, right there in the middle, Your Honor, here's why, because when the injunction was issued, when you read the business court's order, they do an analysis. That analysis is, and they mention in there, the analysis is there was no, um, so in spite of what they ruled in the summary judgment, they then go to the permanent injunction and they say, well, there is no trade name infringement. Um, uh, we're not going to let these parties then this fringe fraction faction continue to use this name. And I would argue and contend as well as the, the appellants, Your Honor, that um, there not be, the relief is that there not be a uh, permanent injunction that the parties, that the plaintiff appellants, who are locked out, be allowed to use the name. That's the relief 
that we feel, we believe, and it's our contention, Your Honors, that the business court got that wrong. No other questions, Your Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. We'll hear from the appellee. Mr. Chief Justice, and may I please the court. I'm Chuck Kitchen, representing the defendants and counterclaim plaintiff appellees. By order dated June 14, 2023, this case, this court dismissed the appeal as to all issues arising from the summary judgment order. In that summary judgment order, it left three things to be determined by the court in a later proceeding. The first was the form of the permanent injunction, not whether one would be issued, but, the, but only the form. The second one was the amount of damages for the trade name infringement. The third were the cost of the action. I would submit to the court those were the only three things that now are appearing before this court to be decided. As far as the monetary damages, the business court also indicated that they had serious concerns on a First Amendment basis that we could not recover those damages. Uh, and looking at it, at that particular issue, the court ordered to be briefed. Uh, the decision was made to withdraw the claim for monetary damages. Therefore, that issue is no longer present. So it only leaves two issues. One is the form of the permanent injunction and cost. The parties were ordered to meet. The parties did meet. There is a stipulation in the record as to the form of the permanent injunction. That appears on page 343 of the record. I will submit the parties did agree as to the form. Uh, as to the question Justice Allen had been asking about it being too broad, um, the court, when it reviewed the stipulation, did uh, determine that uh, we met the uh, appellees, the counterclaim plaintiff, actually counterclaim uh, plaintiff appellee, may have overreached a little bit in writing that particular section and reduced the, the extent of that order. That was the only change made. All the findings of fact in the permanent injunction came directly from the order on summary judgment. Essentially, and he says that in the order itself. The very beginning of the order, he says, these are the uncontested facts that I use for the summary judgment and for this order. As far as the ability to issue a permanent injunction, this has been addressed by the Court of Appeals in Daniel versus Ray, 2003 decision. And it is the prevailing view throughout the country. On page 19 of my brief, I list cases from all over which all say the same thing. And this is the difference in a church case than in a normal business case. With a church case, as is in this case, we had a small fraction, or a faction, if you want to, of the church membership who left. 
The record indicates about 10 to 14 people. What is also indicated in the record, when the um, church met, the congregation met to approve the transfer of the property into a corporation, there were 50 to 55 people at the service, only 37 remained for the business. So you're looking at 50 to 55 actually remaining in the congregation, 10 to 14 who have left on now a permanent basis. You're looking at four years down the road, the church is still there, they're still having services. Not sure exactly what's happening at the time uh, of the record. The last hearing, it was 10 to 14. Don't know how many people are there now. But the majority of the congregation voted to have the, to incorporate. That is settled in the summary judgment order. That's not really before the court today. Trade name infringement was decided. Permanent injunctions are appropriate. In this case, there was this faction left, and I, I want to make a point. Not only were, this is not the case where they're saying, we have opened a new church, and we want to call ourselves Wakefield. What they did was, they went out and said, we're Wakefield Missionary Baptist Church. We have the same address as the church. We're using the same internal revenue code number. The EIN was the same. We are the church. When they went and entered into contracts, they're saying, we are the church. That's what this permanent injunction says they cannot do. They cannot go in and say, we are the church, when the church is actually the congregation, the church is meeting, and it's not them. They were opening separate bank accounts in the name of the church, well, the EIN. That, and I mentioned that the EIN is important because it creates all kinds of tax implications for our client, my client, and that they are reporting monies being paid, salaries being paid, and we don't know anything about it. So when the church files this information return, it's not there. But the, uh, the, the injunction doesn't just address the bank account. It also says that the plaintiffs can't use the name Wakefield Missionary Baptist Church um, in advertising religious services. That's right. So just in your view, assuming the plaintiffs cease using uh, the EIN and, and all that, could they uh, call themselves, for example, Wakefield Baptist Church um, and advertise services under that name um, without violating the, the injunction? They can call themselves Wakefield, certainly Wakefield Church. Wakefield Baptist Church is probably a gray area. They are currently... Um, I think it's New Wakefield Church is what they're using currently as the name of their church. We don't have a problem with using Wakefield. <clears throat> the whole issue is you can't call yourselves the same church or a, or a name that's deceptively similar. If it's deceptively similar, in other words, will it confuse people and when they want to make a contribution, they go and make a contribution to the wrong church. When uh, they enter into contracts. Will the person enter into a contract with them think it's actually Wakefield Missionary Baptist Church or not? I mean, that's the issue you run into. But it is 
fairly uniformly determined that when a faction of the church leaves, leaves that you can't continue to say you are the church. And essentially that's what happened here. Uh, Counselor, may I ask a question? Your friend on the other side mentioned there have been no findings of fact or no uh, evidence of confusion. How do you answer that argument? Well, I would answer the argument is that I think there was confusion in that they were certainly using the name to open bank accounts and enter into contracts. Using the address of the, of the, of the church, the church building, using the EIN number, saying this is, this is us, I don't see how there's not confusion at that point. You know, would they have been able to enter into contracts um, if they came out and said, we're a brand new church? We're now, you know, we're starting anew. Would these people have entered into contracts with them? You know, I don't know if they would have or not. They may have, they may not. But it is certainly confusing to the public when you have the same a, two company, two churches in this case, using the same names and, use, and using the same addresses and using the same tax identification numbers. That essentially is what we said. You can't do that. That goes too far. You, you've got to say I'm a separate church. You can't confuse people. Thank you. But don't I also understand your argument to be that that issue, sorry, uh, um, that that issue isn't properly before us because it was resolved in the summary judgment order? Yes, Your Honor. I would um, say it is not properly before you because the trade name infringement was decided in the summary judgment order. And once it's decided and not appealed, it's race judicata. Right. So the summary judgment order wasn't the final order because there were still these other matters, the form of the injunction and the amount of damages, and then you had a motion for cost. Those things hadn't been decided yet. Right. So it wasn't, the summary judgment order wasn't final. That's correct. So they couldn't appeal until there was the permanent injunction. That's correct. But, but now you're su suggesting that because there was a stipulation as to the form of the injunction, and because you've withdrawn your claim for any damages, that is essentially there's nothing that can be appealed at this point. I, quite frankly, uh, once the court granted the partial motion to dismiss as far as the summary judgment order, I don't see the only thing that I think is really before the court now are the two issues. Can a court issue a permanent injunction? Not the form of it, and not the, the trade name infringement, because all that's decided. But can you do it at all? I think that's one issue that is in front of the court, because that's not really decided by the summary judgment. Mm -hmm. While they said there will be equitable, equitable remedy, it was not actually given in that summary judgment order. So we will reserve that. The other thing, of course, is cost. Uh, the appellant has not made any argument as to cost. In his brief, he did not either. Uh, he simply said, I'm, I'm raising this because we disagree with, with summary judgment. But as a, as a practical matter, that's pretty much settled law. So I think the only issue that really is here is whether or not the court has authority to do it. And I said, as I said, Daniel versus Ray, Court of Appeals said, yes, you can do it. There are numerous cases throughout the court, throughout the, the, the uh, country, which says, yes, courts can do this. Courts can issue injunctions when a faction leaves the church. So I will submit to the court 
while this court has never directly addressed that issue that that is the issue before the court and i would submit to the court it is properly done it does not violate the first amendment by doing so uh, appellant argues several facts that we disagree with however i am not going to try to address those because i don't think they're relevant to this appeal all the facts that he gave essentially go to summary judgment and that's not before the court the only issue is can this injunction be issued i believe if the answer is yes which we would submit you can then there's nothing further to be determined the party stipulated as to the form as the appellant stated they did not agree with underlying summary judgment but as to the form of the order they agreed to it so the only thing is can it be issued at all and i believe that's adequately addressed in our brief and unless there's any questions by the members of the court i will not use the rest of my time and simply stand on my brief as to any further questions thank you thank you counsel rebuttal Thank you. Um, Your Honor, a couple things that the opposing counsel, Mr. Kitchen, mentioned. Um, one, the use of the EIN number. Um, as I've stated here and as the record shows, this case has been in the Superior Court of uh, Wake County Business Court. and uh, There was even a part of it that went up to the North Carolina Court of Appeals at one point in time, over the four years the case has been active. Um, the reason for the EIN number is because once the $250,000, $260,000, which is being held by the, again, Wake County Clerk's Office, was deposited, it was an interpleader action by the bank. I don't know if it's UCB, I forget the name of the bank, but there was an interpleader action. So what happens, John, is there's, there's no money. There's no money for, um, because we had a unified church at that time, and all the funds are being held by the Wake County Spirit, Clerk of the Spirit Court. So what happens now is both parties, both factions have to go out and open up bank accounts. And because the plaintiff appellants were locked out, yes, they continue to use the EIN. They never stopped using the name. So that is why the EIN, that's not some, uh, 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 something that was used deceptively or to cause uh, uh, harm to any party, but there was no money and they had to go out immediately, both factions, and open up uh, bank accounts. Um, I don't think the issue is just simply can the court issue a permanent injunction. I believe the answer to that is yes, the court has the power to do that. The question is, in this case where a church faction has been, again, locked out, and you'll see in the order, Your Honor, it, it, it is something that was on the judge's mind, the business court judge's mind, because he mentions the Purcell case where you had a faction leave so that's on his mind that wait a minute what do we have going on here well when one party leaves if you look at the Purcell case what the business court said was oh I think that's similar here and so I'm going to issue the injunction well if that was the case where the plaintiff appellants left John I would agree totally with the business courts. It sounds like you're arguing that there's a genuine issue of material fact um, with respect to whether 
you know, your clients left the church or whether they were kicked out. But uh, again, that seems like something that would be addressed in an appeal from the summary judgment order. Um, I don't help me. How do we how do we get to that question or that issue? Yes, sir, Your Honor. In the current posture. Yes, sir, Your Honor. Um, and, and the court is correct. The there was no appeal from the directly from the summary judgment because, as I've uh, stated, that that was inadvertently left out of the appeal. However, if we are looking at the injunction within the four corners of the injunction and the record, that's what we're saying. It sort of overlaps, Your Honor. I, I, you can't get one without the other. In other words, Your Honor, what we're saying is. Yes, you have the summary judgment, all right, which this court says, look, those issues are resolved. But then you have this permanent injunction piece here that's before you today. And I think what, and it overlaps, well, you know, how do you get there? How do you impose that this permanent, how does the court impose this permanent injunction on this church faction? And what the court does is it goes through and they make findings. So I do see exactly what you're saying your honor it is a, a really a fine line but the plaintiff appellant's contention is you've got to take it by itself you, we're looking at the injunction and the injunction sort of bleeds over and grabs some of those facts under that it, it just sounds like you're asking us to resolve a factual dispute in order to get to the outcome that your your clients um well, prefer. I, I, I do understand the question, Your Honor, and, and again, I believe it's fine line, but what we're more so asking is that even if you take away, let's uh, hypothetically, Your Honor, uh, but by way of analogy only, um, let's say we take away uh, our argument that, well, you know, did they leave or did they leave or did they, um, uh, or were they locked out? you still have this permanent injunction that says you can't use that name. And what we're saying, what the plaintiff appellant is saying is we should be able to use that name because the other side has shown no likelihood of confusion. Everything that has been asked uh, of the court, of the appellees has been, I think there's been no evidence of any kind that there's any likelihood or was any likelihood of confusion. There is none, there's none in the record and there's none in the arguments here today. So, so yes, Your Honor, I do understand your question. You know, Mr. Jones, are you saying we have to go back and, and look at the, and allow you to make an argument under the summary judgment? And I'm saying, no, I'm just saying, Your Honor, that the permanent injunction grabs some of that, but I think the determination can be made uh, without doing that. I think the determination can be made within the four corners of the injunction itself, Your Honor. Thank you, Your Honors. Thank you, Counsel. Thank you both, Mr. Clark.